and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both Fat Man and Antebellum, a natural double feature. And joining me, he just got back from his book tour in Louisiana. It's Daniel Lima. Daniel, What's thanks for being here. What's going on? What's going on? It feels good to be here. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for, first we're going to talk about uh, Fat Man, and then we're going to talk about Antebellum, because uh, Antebellum is an absolutely wild movie, and I'm still not sure how I'm going to talk about it. So I want to talk about the first movie, Fat Man, which I think is easier to talk about, though maybe actually not as interesting. Uh, Fat Man is the newest movie from directors Ishan Nelms and Ian Nelms. I guess they're brothers. I really don't know much about these guys. I think they're first-time filmmakers. Uh, no, actually, I did look that part up. Yeah, this is like their third or fourth movie. Really? Do they do like B-movies and stuff? Or, or I don't I, know. I, It seems like it. Like they do like – they've done like other genre movies, low budget with like, you know, a couple names that you might know. Yeah, they don't, uh, even, they don't even have their own Wikipedia page. So that's how I was just like – No, they do not have their own Wikipedia page. But their last movie was Small Town Crime like three years ago. And that had people like Robert Forster, Octavia Spencer, Anthony Anderson, John Hawks. Interesting. So, yeah. So they've had some character, a lot of character actors working with them on their little projects. So. Interesting. Well, they, this is a step up because this movie was actually like a $20 million movie, which, I mean, they're probably very sad that they had to release it in this way because it says mm. that it's only made $830,000 to this point. But uh, Daniel like told me, hey, you should. I, I want to do the Fat Man podcast like a month ago. And I was like, I don't know what that is. I looked up the trailer and I was like, I was 100, I'm 100% in. This looks incredible. Unfortunately, I think this would have been like one of the better movies of the year if it, the movie had been like 75% as good as the trailer. And I just don't think quite, quite think it's even that. Uh, Fat Man it, uh, stars Mel Gibson as Chris Kringle. And it depicts a version of Santa Claus who's just a small business owner who wishes things were like they used to be. He's trying to run a factory, and he's more of a manufacturer first and a you know jolly, jolly giant second. We, we spend some time with him. We spend some time with a little boy named Billy Weenan, played by a kid named Chance Hurstfield, who is, I'd say, suitably um, – uh, suitably uh, – What's the word I'm looking for to describe this? Piece of shit. Sure. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think I think he's uh, referred to ben on... Ben Shapiro-y. That, that's, that's, that's a good one. He's I think he's referred to on Walton Goggins' phone as little shit or something like that throughout the movie. Uh, Walton Goggins plays uh, Skinny Man, or that's how he's credited. We eventually find out his real name, but he plays a hitman who uh, Billy decides to retain to uh, take out Santa Claus when Billy gets a lump of coal. Because this is a world in which everyone kind of acknowledges there is a Santa Claus, but no one really knows who he is exactly or much about him. But uh, it's just kind of a, it's, it's a given thing that Santa Claus exists and does the whole Santa Claus thing. Uh, I think this is an incredible idea for a movie, Daniel. And I'll say that. And I saw this. I saw. I saw this trailer, and I was really excited by it. So much so that me, a Jewish person, was not even that really turned off by going to watch Mel Gibson of all people play Santa Claus in a movie. I, that tells you how in I was as soon as I saw this trailer. And I think the premise does get it. To a certain point, at least, because there are aspects of this movie that I don't really mind watching and seeing unfold and seeing how they created this world. But I think my critique of this movie was that given what I the the expectations I had after I watched this trailer, I feel like I wanted it to be either like funnier or just crazier. And instead, it kind of oddly somehow feels it takes a, a an incredibly ridiculous, interesting premise and somehow plays it straight down the middle. Uh, what rubbed you the wrong way about this movie? Because you kind of already said you weren't a fan. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't really a fan of it. Admittedly, when I saw the trailer, you know, I don't know. Like, there was a part of me that did see the trailer and I was like, oh, 
this is going to be like one of those, it could be one of these two clever by half sort of direct to video little projects by like indie directors who have one re- a kernel of a really, really good idea, but don't really know how to correctly utilize it or, you know, in- explore it in an interesting way. Weirdly enough, like you said, uh, this movie kind of plays its premise entirely straight. It's Santa Claus. He's a disgruntled old man. He's kind of tired with the world. Uh, he's running the small business. Times are tough. He's going to have to take projects that he doesn't want to take because uh, it's it's a very weirdly serious movie, which, I mean, that approach, you know, you could see on paper how that might be more interesting than like a more pulpy, a more like silly, like, oh, you know, there's an assassin out for Santa Claus. And I guess kudos for, you know, not doing like the obvious B-movie thriller approach, I guess. But on the other hand, I don't think that these guys were up to, you know, actually making something kind of profound. They think they're making something kind of profound here, I think. Uh, There's a lot about, you know, Santa's relationship with his wife. Uh, there's a lot about like, you know, his relationship with the world at large. Well, I think, there's, uh, I think to, to go off what you're saying, I think there's a, a version of this movie that's like about the economy that yeah, and yeah. They, I think they, these guys maybe originally had something to say about, uh, because they talk about outsourcing in this movie. I think they originally would have had a, you know, some kind of kernel of an idea about like this, this country's kind of outsourcing and these big corporations aren't looking out for the little guy and something like that. But I, I think it's hard to earn points for being progressive when you cast Mel Gibson in your movie at the same time. Yeah. Look, I'm going to, I'm not going to lie. He's kind of a problematic fave for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know I should. Hey, I, the guy who's I, like, I watched Braveheart for the first time in quarantine. I like that movie. I mean, I, I'm not someone as a Jewish guy, I can still appreciate some of his work. I'm just saying if this movie's trying to get some other kind of greater message across, it's harder for me to like impute those, uh, impute that intent onto them and give them any, them to garner any goodwill with me though. When I do know about Mel Gibson, like I can watch a movie and with him in it still though. Yeah, no, I feel you. Uh, the thing is, I, I don't know that I'm even willing to give them that much credit, like mm-hmm. that, like they had like a, a an interesting take, like maybe they could have tied this into. I think that would have made for a stronger movie. But uh, I don't I don't know that they really had anything more than, yo, wouldn't it be cool if we we had like a serious movie where like an assassin goes after Santa Claus after like a kid? Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be wild? And then they didn't really know how to properly executed in a way this movie reminds me of are you familiar with uh the man who killed hitler and then the bigfoot no i'm not um that was a movie that came out i think like last year or the year before i feel like you might have recommended it on the podcast at some point i just never got to it yeah i think i have because sam elliott uh he plays a man who killed hitler and then is charged with killing bigfoot um and that movie despite the really you know the the really outlandish title it it's a it plays its premise entirely straight it plays this man as a man who's you know dealt with killing all his life and he's kind of tired of it life really holds no meaning to him anymore it's one of the greatest performances of that year by sam elliott and i thought i felt that the drama in that movie was so much better than the uh than the actual pulpy elements where like, uh, you know, the CIA contracts a hit on Bigfoot, you know, and those scenes play as very pulpy B-movie flair. And it's just not as effective as like this portrait of this man. Uh, here in this movie, I don't think that they think they really thought that much about what Chris Kringle, like, who is that man? I think they spend a lot, it, it, they divide their attentions too much amongst these other side characters who just aren't really that interesting or fleshed out 
they spend time on this world, which also isn't that really well thought out. Uh, you had said that, like, for example, you said that this world, they kind of assume they people accept that there is a Santa Claus. He's they just don't really know too much about him or who he is or how he does what he does. Honestly, I understand where you came away with that impression because there's a lot of scenes where, like, you know, he's dealing with people who clearly acknowledge that there is a Santa Claus. Meanwhile, there are other scenes where it's clear that that seems like a ridiculous notion. Uh, there's the scene where uh, our hitman hot on the trail of Santa Claus, you know, he's interrogating someone who's, you know, saying like, what? This is crazy. There is no Santa Claus before he's forced to spill the beans. There's a scene where he calls uh, he calls like a, uh, some phone directory and asks for Chris Kringle and they hang up on him immediately. You know, it's played as for laughs. It's played as a, of course, True. they're going right. to hang up yeah. on you. It, it, it's clearly just not really well thought out world. Right, because, because it's like he obviously does exist in this world. So, But like, where do these people think their presence come from? Like, I guess they don't really, you know, like you said, they don't really dig into that enough. Yeah. And there's also like, you know, like the little aspects of like, how, you know, he's immortal because he I, and I hate to sound like I'm like, you know, being like a dweeb about this, like a Marvel fan who's like, well, you don't understand that Thor should be stronger because you <laughs> understand. It. I'm not trying to do that. But what I'm just trying to point out is that if uh, this movie spends a lot of time adding in little details about how, oh, the elves at his workshop are really just smaller people who like live on a diet of candy and like it's it's like little things that like i understand like if you were bouncing ideas off your friend you're like hey wouldn't it be cool if like the elves in this world would be just you know shortly smaller humans that just eat candy all day that would be cool right but then you watch this movie and because of how it's executed in this fairly like you know dry kind of way in this like it's shot like kind of a drama and the you know the the performances all are they're, they they're like they're you're watching a real ass drama and so when they're explaining how this world works and how this uh you know this the, the Santa Claus uh, the Santa Claus myth works in these very dry you know unembellished ways it just feels like nothing yeah you know i think as i was watching and i i thought there's something really interesting about taking something like so ridiculous like this idea, which I think is a great idea, but taking it super seriously. And I, I see value in that, but I guess I would it would have it preferred to be more these people taking it seriously as opposed to the movie maybe taking it as seriously as it does at times because the the tone ultimately doesn't really feel as fun. I think I, I you know what I think I needed more scenes of, and I know this is going to sound really sick and twisted. Yeah, yeah. I needed more scenes of them like torturing the twelve-year-old girl. Like, I, 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 I was like, I can't believe they're really doing this. I, um, I kind of madly respect it because I trust them not to go too far with it. Like, they're not going to make me watch anything that's like actually super like uncomfortable and then legitimately doing anything just vile to that girl necessarily. But the fact mm -hmm. that they were even putting her in that position was actually kind of hilarious to me. And I needed more of the characters maybe pushing it in that way, which is something that was like abhorrent, but like. Not to the point where you're actually going to watch the girl get a hole drilled in her forehead or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, watching no, I feel you, actually. Watch, watch, uh, watching them go somewhere like that, as opposed to just watching Walton Goggins murder Postman, I think there's like a—I actually think there's kind of a distinction there in like how the movie's handling its the levels of ridiculousness. And I, I think there's like a difference between it, like him just dead-eyed murdering Postman, not as interesting as them like actually finding it necessary to torture a 12-year-old girl. 
No, I'm with you, actually. Uh, like I said, like, for example, uh, The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, mm-hmm. that's a movie where I felt that the dramatic elements worked better than the pulpy elements. Here, I think that's kind of the opposite, although neither really did that much for me. Um, but yes, I do think that that scene where, like, you know, uh, Walton Goggins has captured a girl who, like, beat the little boy uh, who, like, got, like, uh, this rich little kid, the kid we were talking about who like is like kind of like Ben Shapiro light. Mm-hmm. He captures his adversary at like the uh, the school science fair. Mm-hmm. And um, there's like this whole torture scene where like he's threatening her with like a car battery. And it, it's ludicrous, but it's played to a T like you'd expect a torture scene to go. It's just that it's about it's like a 12 year old boy with a 12 year old girl. And, like, he's, like, you know, causing sparks to come off the car battery as he explains what she's (laughs) going to do about that, like, first that first place ribbon. Like, you know, it's stupid and ridiculous in a way that's actually kind of should have been kind of the tone of the movie. If you're going to take this seriously, you've got to up the ridiculousness a bit and. You know, this movie kind of plays it as a drama the entire way through. Right. And I think like the drama isn't that strong. Yeah. And I think doing that having seen more scenes that kind of push it in the way that that one does would allow it not to fall into that B movie horror territory. You were kind of like, you know, worried it might just go down that path. And I I don't think that was what that was. That was just like a, a movie striking like an interesting tone within this interesting premise. And instead it just, like you said, ended up, ends up kind of playing it straight throughout. Uh, and I think, like you said, I think you were right earlier. When I, I want to back up to when you said it was kind of spread a little too thin because it's kind of spread across these three different characters. And I don't think you bring in Walton Goggins to not make as much use of him as you can. I think he's the he's the best movie he's the best actor in this movie that's not super super problematic in real life. So I think you would like to actually spend more time with him. Uh, I, I, I do kind of like the reveal at the end uh, that, well, it's not even a reveal, but just because we already kind of know that uh, Chris can remember, just knows everyone. And I, I, I that's one of the parts of this movie that I like is just seeing him like s- slyly do his Santa Claus things while just looking like Mel Gibson with a bushy beard. Uh, I, I got a kick out of him. I'll talk- agree. That, I'll agree. That, that was pretty. Talking to the guy at the bar. I, I, I don't know. That worked on me. And just seeing how he could like just kind of all of a sudden like really creep someone out like that. I appreciated that. So I, I we should I shouldn't have been caught off guard when he had that moment, given that we've seen Skinny Man, uh, you know, want to collect all these like actual things built by Santa. But I was actually kind of still caught off guard, nonetheless. At uh, Jonathan Miller, you twisted child, like that that moment actually did kind of get to me, and I like how that paid off. It's just everything that got to that point, I wasn't like as I, I, I just wasn't as like, you know, into it as I'd hoped to be. I thought I was going to be laughing a lot more and or just like, you know, having visceral reactions like I did to that moment with the girl in the basement. And I just didn't there just were those moments were too few and far between for me. Yeah, no, I agree. Actually, that final scene, I want to point out that uh, that final scene has like a has a actually pretty decent gunfight between mel gibson and uh walton goggins the whitest thing ever it's hilarious yeah it's honestly it's not a bad scene and uh i looked it up i i I don't know who's behind that i I genuinely can't really say for sure however i looked up some of the uh assistant ad's which i believe are the people who uh handle like you know action the assistant directors i see that one of the assistant directors was also ad on hold the dark which all, which was the Jeremy Solner Solnier movie? Yeah, I didn't like uh, that movie. Starring, see, I didn't either. 
but it also had a, good a gun really fight. great gunfight. Yeah, and actually one of the third assistant directors, I believe, also had, also was on. The, oh no, no, I'm, I'm wrong. It's just the, the 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 first AD. So I mean, I have no idea whether that person was the guy or girl. I, I don't know the gender of this person. I don't know if that was the person handling that gunfight scene, but I mean, it's, it's honestly pretty decent. Yeah. So I guess it, that, that builds to something. It's just, I feel like they still could have done more with that character throughout the movie. And I yeah. think, I think, you know, as great as the little ben, miniature Ben Shapiro is, I, I, Oh, I, I would, I do want to say that I don't agree with you there. What do you mean? Well, I mean, maybe he played it to, maybe this is just me because I really just hate that kind of character. I think he did what was asked of him. Well, I just don't think we needed him necessarily beyond the initial phone call. That's fair. I don't, I don't think we even, I mean, look, I I agree with you that the scene in the, 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 the scene with the, the, the adversary from the science fair, I like that scene. Um, arguably I think that you don't really need him there at all. Yeah. What function does he serve other than because this, you know, uh, Walton Goggins character yeah, is he, this person out with a vendetta against Santa Claus. So what do you need this kind of like Artemis Fowl type, you yeah, know, really I, smart driven child character there for anyways? Right. I would agree. Like you don't even need that scene. You just need more scenes that feel like that scene. Uh, yep. So if you get rid of the kid and you can do more with Walton Goggins, because I mean, I, I, I. I did like the stuff with Chris Kringle. I liked him. I liked them talking about him like he was like uh, an exploited college athlete who isn't getting compensated for his likeness. I, I, I don't know. I got a kick out of that. I got, I, 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 like I said, I appreciated him just kind of like cre- creeping people out by like all of a sudden knowing everything about them. I liked him just casually talking about the reindeer as they were standing, standing in like a stable, basically. I, I don't know. I, I actually, so I actually kind of enjoyed that stuff. We were hanging out with him. Uh, but at the same time, it's still like you said. It's all played very straight, and I like that at parts because you know we think of Santa as this. Uh, we think of Santa as we we know Santa is depicted as a in, in general as just being uh, one very specific way most of the time in popular culture. Uh, and I so I, I kind of liked seeing it be something different, but at the same time, there's maybe a version of that corner of the movie that still strikes a more bizarre tone because you're watching the um, uh, you're, you're watching the trailer, and then I think there's. Uh, I don't. I, I, I funny. I, I don't know, it's either Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer or uh, some other some other kind of classic Christmas song is altered in a way to make it almost sound like a horror movie soundtrack type of trailer thing. And I, I it just set me up to think that the whole vibe was going to be a bit different than it was. And that's, mm. that's that's the biggest thing I can say is that I didn't vibe with this movie in the way I wanted to, even if I saw a lot of pieces that I thought could have came together to be something better. Yeah, I'm with you there. I will say that there is one. There's one line that stuck with me. Uh, there's a scene, real quick, you know, uh, where uh, uh, Walton Goggins is going into a pet store because, like, he has a ha- pet hamster that he really likes. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the hamster barely comes up; it barely features. What's a what's a what's the term? I think JB told me that there's a director out there or a critic who referred to this as like a blender device or something like that. After like a character in like one of some movie, some 2000s action movie who had a blender that he really, really liked. Um, and he would just constantly talk about this blender in this movie. Hmm. And it, it didn't, it did nothing for the plot whatsoever. It just, this character's quirk was that he really had a blender. He had a blender that he really liked. That's basically this Walton Goggins with his hamster. (laughs) Anyways, he goes, he goes into this pet store 
He gets food for his hamster. And, like, the woman is trying to sell him, like, oh, trying to sell him on, like, reptiles. She's like, oh, you look like a snake kind of guy. Snake, And he's like, no, snakes eat, eat snakes eat hamsters. I just want food for my hamster. And she keeps pushing this on him. And, she, and at one point he's like, you know, you do remind me a lot of my mother. Uh, she also was a bad listener didn't to, and didn't know when to shut the fuck up. And that shuts the lady up. That's a funny line. And it's a very funny delivery. I like Walton Goggins, man. That dude, he's underrated. Yeah, there's another moment where he's talking to, uh, I, th- I, th- I think talking to Billy about just like uh, burning flesh and menthols. And there's like not a hint of irony in his voice. I don't remember the context because I'm now looking at my notes and I can't remember. Oh, I, I do remember. I do remember this scene. He, there's like some random kid that he sees. Uh, and he's like, uh, what'd you get for Christmas? And the kid shows him like a little plane. And uh, he's like, you know what I got for Christmas? And he pulls out like he rolls down his shirt sleeve and you see a bunch of cigarette burns and he's like this is what my daddy would give me on christmas blah 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 and then he gives the kid like two hundred dollars for his little airplane oh right 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 yeah i think he gets it right you know i think his performance is such that uh, even if i could have had more with that character like i said if you're going to take like a, a ridiculous subject matter super seriously, you need to have someone that gives like a totally, totally committed performance like him in that works. It just doesn't feel like the overall movie is on his wavelength in the way that would work, I guess. And that's the, yeah. that's the, that's the one thing that I would have to say though. It's interesting. Uh, it, it really worked with the audience, the, the larger audience. It was a 46 with the critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 83 at the audience. So I don't know. I, 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 How many I, audience reviews? I didn't. I didn't even look at the total number. I, I guess probably not too many people have seen this movie. I would think, but I still wanted to yeah, talk about it nonetheless. I, I would. Yeah. No. Same. Same. Uh, I'm looking on Letterboxd real quick just to see. Yeah. Honestly, it's got a better percentage on Letterboxd than one would expect. Uh, all the people I follow who t- you know tend to watch DTV movies, they all gave it like a three, a three point five. I think that's a bit generous, but also, I mean. It's not like this is all bad. Yeah, I haven't so. reviewed it yet. I was going to go with the 2.5 or 3 probably myself. Uh, I, I mean, 3, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I've been a little more negative on it than I maybe intended to be coming in. But I, I didn't really mind watching it the whole time. It's just I kind of came in expecting to have more fun than I did. But I, 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 like I said, there are parts that I liked. And uh, I, I guess I'm having trouble necessarily picturing what the perfect version of this movie looks like because I sound weird when I'm discussing how I like when – I, when I say I like seeing some of Santa's business troubles and that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that's necessarily going to be made for a movie that's on the wavelength of what you expect when you see that trailer. So I don't know, but I, I, I just think there's a way you could maybe uh, rejigger this movie to make it work a little better. Uh, do you have any other final thoughts? Uh, not, not really. There's not really much to, not really much more to say about the fat man. Sad to say. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, we're not going to be getting coal because we talked bad about him. We'll move on to Annabelle. And <laughs> it's, it's the newest movie from, uh, directors Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz. They're also, they also wrote the movie. And, uh, before Daniel and I start, I'm going to say that like, we're not going to really do a separate spoiler section for this movie. And I don't even know if I'm going to give this movie an actual real recommendation because I think it's good. But if you have any interest in perhaps watching it because you remember seeing the trailer and thinking it was vaguely interesting, I would tell you to go watch it and not not to watch the trailer again or read anything about it. Because if you can have an experience watching this movie where you really do not know anything that's coming at all, as I did, because I had watched the trailer once a long time ago. Remember thinking it was interesting, saw the bad reviews, was like, all right, that's a stay away. And then Daniel told me a few days ago, like, you should watch this. And I just did, and I didn't watch anything else. And I had the kind of, like, 
uh, wow moment I thought I was going to have when Daniel told me to watch Spies in Disguise and not learn anything else about it. I was just like expecting some like really crazy shit when he got really excited for me to go watch Spies in Disguise and know nothing. And it was kind of there, there was a funny revelation in that movie, but I wasn't like shocked like I was at some of the a, a couple of moments in Annabelle. So. Even if you think end up thinking Annabelle is a bad movie, I think it's actually worth watching just for the experience of like some of the twists and turns that are kind of crazy. And that is what I'll say without actually saying anything about it is that you might end up thinking this is the most offensive abomination of a movie ever, yet still be like, oh, cool, like that was an interesting viewing experience. Do you agree with my sentiment there, Daniel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of those things where you don't want to know. You want to know as little as you can going in. I think all movies kind of work better that way. But um, well, some people yeah, don't really give a shit about like, spoilers or anything. And I, you knew oh, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. You, you yeah, knew, for you, those people, for those people, I just want to impress upon you. Yeah, don't 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 learn anything more about this movie. Go in knowing what you know. You'll have a better time. Uh, it's like Serenity. I remember going in to see Serenity. I had no idea what it was about. <laughs> oh, I my just God. Knew that people I know just knew people were dissing it. And I was like, all right, well, I'll go see a movie that people are dissing. And I, I was just flabbergasted. I was floored by the revelation in that movie. So what's also crazy about Serenity is just like, I mean, the people they got to be in it. And I guess there's this is a pretty legitimate cast here too. But Serenity was like, like multiple people that have been like nominated or won Oscars that signed up for that, which is just wild. Yeah. Uh, wow. but, I mean, that that, that kind of happens every now and then with the movie that's not great. But, uh, but yeah, if you don't, again, if you even have an inkling of possibly wanting to watch Antebellum, I highly recommend leaving now, watching it, and then coming back to hear us talk about it. And because we're, I think we're, at least I'm still trying to process it. I know Daniel might have been workshopping a crazy take. I don't know if he got there yet, but that's something to, that's something to tease for, to get you to come back, even if he doesn't actually end up having his take ready yet. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on now. Antebellum, uh, like I said, from Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz, it starts out in a uh, Louisiana slave plantation that has been commandeered by Confederate soldiers who are running it even uh, more intensely than your average plantation, making it so much so that the uh, slaves are not even allowed to talk to each other, but they're doing all the typical heinous things that slave owners would do to slaves, and anyone that are attempting to escape, they're, they're burned in crematoriums. There is a, a a man after a failed escape attempt has to watch his wife get burned to death. Uh, another another slave named Eden, played by Janelle Monet, tries to escape and she's abused. And uh, the movie for the first you know fifteen twenty. 20, actually 35 minutes actually i think i think it's about the 35 minute mark it plays as a parody of 12 years a slave which is what i thought i was watching i thought i was watching just like uh, i thought i was watching like the the what scream is for horror movies i thought i was watching that for like slavery movies and then all of a sudden uh as you're watching eden uh, in bed uh you hear a phone ring and uh then she wakes up a different version of her that named veronica wakes up in uh, Washington, D.C. with her family. She's kind of a scholar, writery type of person that is now going down to Louisiana as part of a book tour. Uh, she goes out with some friends, uh, and uh, they they end up having a fun time, but then it, uh, the night takes a dark turn where, uh, she, uh, where Veronica gets kidnapped, and the movie then takes another turn, which we'll talk about, but I'll back up for a second. And I guess uh, first ask you, Daniel, um, man... Do you think it's a good thing this movie exists? Have you come to a conclusion on that answer? Oh, I'm still trying to puzzle that one out. Now, first off, I will point out that I didn't necessarily think that it was like a 
pair. It, it, it to me didn't play as a parody of the kind of slavery movie, but it, Dude, it, it to me it, 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 it felt like rock. Hard, it felt like rock hard for slave movies for me. That's what it felt like watching it. It just felt the the, the way that whole entire first tracking shot like it's like played so seriously, and you see all this stuff going on around the plantation. It just it was just like the most. I felt like I'd seen that fifteen times before. Yeah, well, I mean. It just seemed like a typical like movie about slavery to me. Not necessarily parodic. It didn't seem any more uh, egregious like, yeah. than any other movie. I will say that um, it looked better than you know Twelve Years of Slaves. Like you know, technically, it was made this. Whoever shot this movie, man, they knew what they were doing. I'm looking actually at the cinematographer, and I see him have. I see that he's done mostly horror movies. Uh, he, the most notable thing he's done, I think, is the remake of. Uh, Evil Dead, Don't Breathe, like oh, it don't really good. genuinely is shot really well. I'll admit that like some of the suffering, it, it did, it was, it, it felt off to me. The scenes of like, you know, the slaves going through it, suffering, the rape, the murder, the abuse. It, it's, it, it played almost like exploitation at some points the way that I remember there was this one particular shot towards the beginning where like this slave who's escaping, she's crying and the tears are running down her face. It's all happening in slow motion. It's like music playing it like classical music playing in the background. And like the, you see the horse coming up on her and the lasso going around her neck and tightening. And it's, it's sickening in a way that's not fun. (laughs) If that makes any sense, It, it plays like you're supposed to be reveling in this in this pain and suffering. And that kind of didn't really sit that well with me, but I'm like, all right, you know, I, I, the point of a slavery movie, I guess, is to impress upon you the horrible nature of a slavery of slavery. So I guess, but but it's also, it's like, are you bringing something new to the table at the same time? Exactly. uh, That first part of the movie, I'm like, this isn't really doing anything for me. It just is 12 years a slave again. It's like 13 years a slave. Okay, sweet, sweet. But then, watching it you know it transitions to the modern era and i i have seen the trailer multiple times just because it played before everything that i saw back when theaters were open so you know i knew that there was some kind of modern component and i was like all right well the cell phone was the transition device clearly these two characters are connected how are they going to be connected uh the character the exploration of veronica in this you know modern setting was very surface level i thought that right clearly this movie is that sounded like if like i tried to write what a black scholar should sound like exactly (laughs) talking about intersectionality and we have to lose is our chains liberation over assimilation i'm like this sounds like a white guy yeah it's 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 all kind of just empty platitudes and in my head i'm like now is this person trying to draw a connection is this satire is this somebody trying to uh make a point about the difference between the slaves of yesteryear and the, you know, affluence of black people today, the fact that we've managed to make this progress. What is this? Per- what are these people trying to say to us with this movie, the writer director? I suppose I think they both uh, co- were co-writers on the movie also. Yeah. And, you know, like she's she's going on like talk shows and she's like owning the conservatives, but like in a very like wishy-washy kind of way i guess it, it, it's all kind of meaningless all this talk about you know how important it is to like liberate ourselves it it it, it sounds like bullshit if i saw somebody it's the kind of shit i would see on msnbc and go oh this person's just trying to hawk a book 
but we're supposed to be sympathizing with her. We're supposed to be on her side. What is what's going on here? What's the disconnect? What is this movie trying to say? Then we get to her in her like really great looking apartment. I mean, a hotel when she's separated from her family in Louisiana and she's joined by, um, I'm sorry. I forget this girl's name all the time. Jenna Malone or no. Oh, Gabrielle Sidibe. Gabrielle Sidibe. Yeah. And she, uh, she comes and she comes up and meets with her and she, they're all, they're both kind of elite black women, you know, Gaborni. That's how you pronounce her name. Gabrielle Sidibe. Gabby Sidibe. You just say, you just say Gabby Sidibe. Gabrielle. Uh, you know, she's, very uh charismatic we'll say charismatic she's very much honestly to the point like she's supposed to be like an empowered black woman i guess but the way she's playing it it's like she's the sassy black friend in like a rom-com and it it feels kind of i i hate to say it it feels kind of abrasive to me just she's like she walked in from an entirely different movie and i'm like is this supposed to be a statement on like the privileged nature of like these black intellectuals today uh, the disconnect they feel from, you know, the, the the suffering of the average black person. What is what is this movie trying the, to say? I, yeah, like she she walks into that restaurant like she owns the place, and is this? I guess it was maybe like kind of saying like, oh, here's how you know a white person could get away with this kind of thing. So she's just gonna like you know do the same thing. And uh, I think that's what it's going for. But I'm not. Tr- I'm tr- what I'm trying to understand is that I see this behavior the way that uh, Gabourey's character is acting, and. On the one hand, I think they're aiming for that plus like female empowerment, the fact that she's able well, to take control of this situation like she is. But it also, to me, it, it comes across as super elitist. And I'm not – what I'm trying to figure out is, is this movie trying to try, – are they showing this character and these characters as like positive figures or is this kind of a takedown of these characters? Well, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, so the, the next twist that the movie takes – is yeah, that and this you, is where we get. To, can I say it? Oh God, can I say yeah, it? Yeah, go for it. Because I want to know if your if your your mind is headed where mine is. Because I think the next part of the movie kind of you know answers the question you were just asking. Well, I don't know about that, but all right. So they go out to dinner, mm-hmm. right? What's her name? The the uh, Janelle Monae's character, Veronica. Veronica. She separates from her two friends, ends up getting kidnapped by these two people that we have seen in the slave sections, but obviously in like you know modern clothing. She gets abducted, and then we transition back to the slave time, and we realize that it's actually a flashback. That whole stuff in the modern era, it's a flashback. This lady was abducted off the street and then just brought to a modern-day plantation. They are just Civil War reenactors who are super gung-ho about it. This is the fucking village. It's the fucking village. That's the twist of this movie. It's the exact same as the M. Night Shyamalan movie from 2004 or 2005. I can't remember. The Village. It's modern times. I've actually never seen The Village, so thanks for spoiling it for me. Oh, uh, I'm so sorry. That's like one of the most famous, like, bad endings. I'm sorry. I didn't <laughs> so apologies to all the people listening in. But, like, that's one of the, I mean, I'm sorry. That movie came out, like, 10 years ago. Like, yeah, I don't know. You're, you're, you're okay. You're okay. I, I, yeah. I, I, I probably was not going to watch it anytime soon. So. <laughs> so, like, and then it recontextualizes all the suffering that we had seen because then we realized that the suffering that these black bodies have undergone for the previous like for that first 30 minutes it's of like 12 movie. years it's like 12 years a slave they knew what freedom was except sorry, say again they knew what freedom yeah, was so it actually is like 12 freedom years was yeah it, they knew what freedom was they had experienced freedom and they had it robbed from them and now they're faced with the same condition and you find out that every single other black person was like a black intellectual uh you, you know one of the the, the the man that watched his wife get burned alive in a crematorium uh 
he's a fucking professor. You know what I mean? And it becomes clear that this is an operation where, like, white, uh, specifically white, uh, like, it's the entire thing is run by a white sitting U.S. senator <laughs> who is abducting black, mouthy, uppity black people. And we and were forcing them to be slaves. And we learned that he targeted Veronica. Like apparently, like he saw her on TV and was like, "Yep, that makes me really uncomfortable. I don't like that. We're gonna go go get her." And I want to read you what I saw. What something I read in a review on Vanity Fair or no on Rolling Stone from uh, Cam Austin Collins. He said, "Of all the movies, one because I think this kind of answers what they were going for. I'm agreeing with you that I don't know if they actually stuck the landing." He says, "Quote." Of all the movies one could recall at that moment, I thought back to Green Book and to the truth it wears on its face, apparently unbeknownst to even to the movie, that few things can seem more vexing or infuriating to latent white racism than the merest idea of black, quote, privilege. The slightest hint of a black way of being that fuses to accept secondary status or know its place. Antebellum, to its credit, makes this tension somewhat explicit, but in barreling toward what begins to feel like a foregone conclusion, it cuts its exploration of that idea painfully short. So, like, I think that's a thing that, like, it makes white people really uncomfortable to, like, be actually be in a position where, like, to have a black person challenge them sometimes. And this movie is kind of taking that to maybe it's the most extreme of extremes. But I do think that's kind of what it's going for, and because like that's what these these white people just like, and and also the idea of how people like in general, not even just something as base as make America great again, because what does again mean? It is referring to a time in the past when things were even worse for black people than they are now, and there's something inherently uncomfortable when people romanticize that time of the past that they're implicitly talking about when they say that, and just the idea of people like yeah, there's the whole thing where like way too many people in the South are still all about the Confederate flags, but it's not even that. It's just in general how people kind of like to talk about the good old days, like you know, 50s America or something like that, and how small and quaint it was, and that image that sometimes people like to paint, even in movies and pop culture today, it's like yeah, that may have been very nice for those white suburbs, but not so much for other people, and I think this movie kind of takes aim at that, and it's like, hey, look how ridiculous these people are that talk about that, though who knows if they actually told the story in a way to like you said, land that idea that this writer for Rolling Stone kind of highlighted. Look, I think you're giving this movie too much credit. I'm not going to lie. I think I think what they're going for is making a connection between uh, the suffering that black people undergo today and the uh, suffering that they underwent in the past. The problem is uh, they're not focusing on the right modern black people if they want to do that. Part, partly that. This movie is just so confused on its messaging. It's so clunky in how just the dialogue, the basic dialogue is written that I am left unsure entirely what exactly is it trying to say, even though you've spelled that out. And that that could be possible. That could be possibly what they're aiming for. But it doesn't hit partially because of the nature of this twist. Knowing now that what you had seen before was these black people, it—, it I hate to be this guy. I really do hate to be this guy. I'm normally not this guy, but I swear to God, you think a fucking sitting U.S. senator is abducting prominent Wikipedia? They have a Wikipedia page, black people, and putting them in a Civil War reenactment camp right off the fucking highway, and like it took one of them to like it's been going on forever, and it took takes just one of them to like you know, get a message out, like, in order to stop. It's the most ridiculous, goofy, B-movie plot device. I've, I, like, 
I've ever. It's, yeah, what but, are the but, 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 but that you like you like seen. goofy B movies though. And this is where we're. This is the point I'm trying to get at. <laughs> this movie, I think, as a bit of social commentary, utterly fails because of how clumsily it's executed, because of how mixed the messaging is. You know, if you want to make the connection between the suffering of black people, and why would you pick elite black? It almost makes it seem. Like these black people, I mean, uh, this is the kind of one of the things that you could come away with this movie thinking that this movie is trying to make a point that the black people of today who talk about the suffering of black people today don't know what true suffering is because they have not experienced the evils of slavery. Yeah, well, go on, please, please. Well, I was going to say, or they could have shown a different part of those black people's lives. Instead, we only see this woman in her really, really like fancy, fancy, fancy Washington, D.C. apartment. We see her speaking at a book tour, and then we see her at a fancy restaurant. And well, that's my point. Yeah, she is an elite black woman. She's at, she goes to fancy restaurants. She gets she goes on book tours. She goes, this, isn't, this I think, isn't an experience I can relate to. Right, well, I think I, there could have been a way for them to like subtly show how even those people like experience racism in certain ways, but they didn't even really go there. They just showed her living her most, li- no, living they, her they, they, do, they do make the attempt. Like the fact that like how the interactions that she has with like the hotel staff. I remember there's like a scene when uh, she's out to dinner with like oh, true, uh, true. You're right, you're Gabourey, right, 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 right. and there are little moments where she faces microaggressions. Right. But like those moments kind of play into what I'm talking about. It that, could be, that's that's could the worst thing. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't you could interpret it as this is the worst thing a black person has to experience today, and you know this this black woman, uh, uh, Victoria, what's her name, Veronica, Veronica, she doesn't experience the kind of like in your face racism that like actually still occurs today. Uh, right. You know, the worst she experiences the microaggressions. She needs to be taken back to a time where like you could be raped on site. You know, that's, you could come away with that reading of the movie and the fact that you can, it makes it a failure in terms of social commentary. If what they were trying to do is draw a parallel between the experiences of black people today and of, in a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, that being said, as an exploitation movie, I think it arguably does better. Now, I'm not saying that that makes it necessarily a good movie, but like, I mean, first off, like the whole entire sequence where this woman is escaping the plantation, it's pretty good. There's a scene where she burns a bunch of, you know, a bunch of these like white rapists, racists alive, and it feels great. I'm sorry. It just feels great. I'll never get over, I'll never tire of a scene where like a racist gets burned alive. I don't care. I don't care. You could put that in any movie. And it makes it like a half point better. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, but, I, 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 I generally feel the same way about Nazis eating shit. Exactly. Um, and while, yes, it, it kind of makes the earlier scenes of slave suffering a little bit ickier. It, I don't know how to put this. It makes it seem more like a horror movie than as like a, another like – Another slave drama. And that recontextualization, I know, probably doesn't sit well with most people, and I understand that. But at the very least, I don't know. It's something. It's something, I guess. I'm curious. How, how, I, do, you, how do you feel about uh, 12 Years a Slave? You, you said you didn't think – you thought this looked better than it. Do you have feelings on that movie in general? Uh, you know, at the time, I really liked it. And then as time went past, I was like, eh, it's all right. Honestly, as I've – delved more into the history of slavery in America as I've been reading, you know, more books on the subject. I've come to kind of appreciate how that movie delves into the institution and delves into all the the nuances. Not to say that it it ever like gives slave owners a pass. Uh it slavery is depicted as this horrible 
institution, this evil, vile thing. But it also allows for uh, a showing of Southern society, like a more, uh, how do I put it? A more multi-dimensional, multi-dimensional, faceted. multifaceted, that's the word I'm looking for, multifaceted depiction of the institution of slavery, where like, you know, it shows that slaves were not just working in the fields and then go to bed. They had inner lives. They had things that they were, that they, they had moments that they were able to craft to like hold on to their humanity. It showed that not every slave owner was like a, a overtly racist monster. It shows that every single one of them were. They, they just, they, they, different ways, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of exploring that. Like I remember the the Benedict Cumberbatch character who has clearly has misgivings about the, the institution of slavery, but is also completely willing to co-sign to it. You know, it's a it's yeah. a far more I think interesting exploration of slavery than I'm used to seeing. It has a sort of nuance in how it treats its subject matter that antebellum absolutely does not. Yeah, I would agree with that. My thing with 12 Years a Slave was that I felt it it really kind of dwelled in that suffering even more than it needed to. And I don't know, I get get it. Like, it sounds weird if like a, a white person says that, like, oh, I don't, I don't want to see that. But it was more like, I kind of wanted more of those other aspects of slavery. I was genuinely curious about like seeing how it worked when you had the Alfred Woodard character that was like, basically, I think, married to one of the slave owners or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's a part of slavery I didn't know about. Whereas, like, I felt like I was just watching uh, Michael Fassbender beat on Lupita Nyong'o for the 15th time. It, it, like, I was just like, okay, I'm interested. No, I in, understand that. Really enough. Sorry, continue. No, no. I was just saying I, I was interested in other stuff. And I felt like this one showed, like, if nothing else, Antebellum it had the suffering in it and it had other stuff. It's just, you know, it probably didn't tie it together well. Was my was my point in asking about that? Where it's like, yeah, 12 Years of Slave, obviously better nuance, better tells the story it wants to tell better than this does. But that was kind of my thought on 12 Years of Slave where it was like, it's probably giving me just like too much of this trauma and not enough of this other interesting, probably deeply researched stuff about slavery. And I don't know, I, I thought like there's a version of Antebellum that like, you know, shows other stuff besides the suffering that I'm like, oh, okay, it's interesting you told your story this way. It's just, I don't, I don't know if it really told its story in the best way it could have. I'll admit, it, yeah, I understand. It does feel a little weird to have a white dude saying like, I don't know, I got, I got, I kind of got the point of the suffering, <laughs> but I do, but I will say that there, there is a certain point with at least me and- It's like a two hour know, and 30, friends. it's like a two hour and 40 minute movie, I think, you know? Yeah, and the, there's, there's me and my friends at least, and you know, this isn't universal to be clear, but I have noted that, like, I'm a little tired of seeing black suffering on film if that's all you're going to give me. It becomes kind of exhausting to just constantly get new movies where it's the point is just black people suffer. If that's all you're going to give me, I'm probably not going to go see your movie. I had me and I know no and I know a lot of black people have seen and like, for example, Just Mercy. I skipped out on it. I was just like, this is probably a movie that's not going to explore any facet of the criminal justice system that I'm already aware of. I think I got it. I think I got it. I'm not going to go see it. It's Oscar bait. It's for the white people who don't know about this shit. Uh, I'll let them have this one. Um, but anyways, uh, in t- with Antebellum, like you were right, it just doesn't really tie in uh, the messaging. It doesn't tie in the connection between what it's trying to say in the slave portion and what it's trying to say. Yeah. In the- but weirdly enough, that might be its saving grace. I think that in their clumsiness and in their inability to actually express what they're trying to get at, I think this movie actually becomes not a satire, not a parody of slave the slave narrative in film. 
I think that it weirdly becomes a satire of black elitism today. And I know this makes me sound like Armand White, and I apologize for that. <laughs> but what I mean to say is something I'm getting a little bit tired of is a sort of flattening of the dynamics of like black and brown communities. I think that there's this tendency to kind of just assume that like every black and brown person in America kind of is on the same wavelength. And I don't think that that's true at all. I think that there are definitely privileged black and brown Americans that don't really speak to uh, the, the suffering of black people in, say, inner cities, or even the suffering of working class blacks. I, I, I look at like a character like Veronica, and I see, you know, that that doesn't relate to me at all. That's a foreign world to me. It's as foreign a world as like Glen Gree, Glen Ross, or Margin Call. You know, <laughs> I have no, I have no relation to this character whatsoever. I, I, I and I personally know uh, several of these kind of uh, individuals who claim to speak for, you know, black issues to the issues of marginalized communities. And I look at some of the things that they say and some of the policies that they support. And I'm like, that you don't really know what's going on, do you? Uh, just today, I was looking through and I, I know that this is this might kind of reveal a little bit about political inclinations. I apologize. But I remember looking through some old messages and I found a tweet that somebody sent me from Ava DuVernay. Uh, she was responding to a tweet by Bernie Sanders uh, who had said, like, you know, to the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, we're out here, we're in force, you know, the kind of populist messaging that he does. And her response to that tweet was, I don't know what I wanted, but all I know is not this. And I look at that mess and I'm like, what exactly do you have a problem with with Bernie Sanders? The working class ideology, the what exactly? It, 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 there's no relation between my brand of politics and how I see the world and how I see the issues faced by black and brown people in America today and her. There's no, we, we don't see things eye to eye at all. Uh, I guess it is interesting and, when you can relate more to like a 79-year-old white Jewish man than from Brooklyn than Ava DuVernay. <laughs> exactly. And like, I think that this movie and its clumsiness kind of exposes uh, uh, True. the, 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 the how silly some of that equation can be the flattening of power dynamics, even within the black and brown communities, you know, black is not a monolith. Brown's not a monolith. People have different experiences. People have different uh, roles to play and uh, experiences in this society. Uh, now this movie still doesn't entirely sit well with me. I'm going to be clear with you. The, it feels icky. The uh, the scenes of the slave suffering. I, I don't know. Maybe that says something about me that it becomes ickier. How, how, how could it? How could, like? Is there a version like? I don't know. Does it is does it not feel icky in Twelve Years a Slave? Which again, objectively a better movie. But like, how is that supposed to sit with anyone? Other, you know what I mean? Well, what I mean to say is not necessarily the content that I'm looking at, but the context of. I don't know, like the way that the scenes are shot. For example, I look at Twelve Years a Slave. And I remember that scene, uh, you know, the hanging scene where they leave him to hang. And it's just, I think, eight minutes of just an unbroken shot of him hanging from a tree with his toes barely touching the ground as, uh, you know, slave the slaves around him just continue on with their tasks, their daily lives. And it's it's a it's an awful, like gut wrenching scene that impresses upon you the normalcy 
of uh, slavery, of, of violence in the slave in a slave society. I look at that scene and I compare it to like the scenes of like I remember there's a scene where like one of the, the, the that slave who watched his wife go burn in the crematorium, he's sent to go clean out the crematorium and he finds like her bones or something and he's shouting out into the dark and like the sun rays are like on him and it just feels like this is oh somebody I don't know it feels artificial it feels like somebody was going in going like how do we create like a really a really powerful looking shot how do we make this look as good as possible and that I don't know I think there's a difference between uh, that kind of the stark reality of the violence as portrayed in 12 years of slave and the sort of elevation of it in this movie especially considering like I don't know I, I maybe I don't know why it is that it becomes so much worse to me knowing that these are supposed to be modern people living in the modern society yeah, I mean that's just a it's think, a it's a crazy it, I twist. I get I get why it's hard to like get past like a senator being involved in it, but uh, I think I think you know I think honestly a part of it might be the uh, I I understand the linking of uh, the evils of slavery and how it perpetuates you know today, but I don't know a part of me is sort of like, but that isn't the experience of black people today, and it. It, it kind of keys. It feels like a fundamental misunderstanding of what people are struggling with today. To to me, I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know how to quantify this one. I'm telling you, man. I have no idea how I. Ultimately, I I kind of just don't know how I feel about this movie. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I wish I could give people a uh, a stronger recommendation one way or the other. It's interesting to think about, but I think probably what you said, the biggest indictment of it might be that I think we've both thought about it a lot over the last few days, and we don't exactly understand what it was trying to say, and we don't even really know how we feel about it. And I think a, a, a good movie, like, you're not, you're not really left, like, that dumbfounded as to whether or not you liked it so that's probably a little bit of an indictment in and of itself but i still think it's it's an interesting going through watching this movie is an interesting exercise in and of itself so i i guess i don't know i've never been this perplexed by movie, <laughs> i don't think i don't know well, 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 well you I've said when you first messaged me and you were trying to get me to watch it you said it's either the worst movie of the year or the best movie of the year and i'm not even sure so did you have something else on your mind when you said it might be the best movie of the year beyond your, its critique of the, the black elite that you've already discussed? Because it seems like that's the one thing you, in theory, could possibly respect about it. I, it's that and honestly, look, the twist is stupid. <laughs> the audaciousness of the twist. This is part of the reason. Um, I was thinking about this. Why did I r- immediately write off like something like Hamilton as vile or something like Green Book as vile? But when I see this movie and how like exploitative it gets with its, you know, violence. Like what's, what's the deciding factor here for me? And I think honestly, a part of it is the fact that it's just so stupid. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. It's just such a stupid, like, I mean, green book for all its flaws, it's, it's transparent about what it's trying to do. Hamilton is transparent about what it's trying to do. These are two movies that are just kind of appealing, or I guess in Hamilton's case, a play, that are just trying to appeal to the neoliberal white audience and try to, you know, get them to, you know, enjoy like some movie about that, about uh, a race or diversity that, you know, kind of confirms what they feel about America and society at large and doesn't challenge them at all. Like these these are two works that are completely transparent about what they're attempting to do. And so it's easier for me to write them off. Gotcha. But with this one, I still am not entirely sure that I have the right read on this movie. 
I, and so it's hard for me to condemn it. Did, uh, is that is that complicated at all by knowing that it's made by a white person and a black person? Uh, not really. I know that, like, I mean, for example, you look at something like blind spotting. I think that blind spotting is a very great look at the divisions in of race in our society. And made by a white was, person and a black person. <laughs> by a white person and a black person. And, you know, black people and brown people can make terrible fucking art about race. Good thing that good thing good, good, good thing uh, you didn't watch Hamilton before you saw Blind Spotting. You might have just been too turned off to even <laughs> give it a shot with the David hey, Diggs look, of it all. I like David Diggs as an actor. As a rapper, eh. <laughs> as a as a as a performer, I tend to really genuinely So I'm guessing you're like you're him. conflicted about the ending of Blind Spotting, I'd assume then. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean the ending is kind of what kept it from being a 5 for me. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Antebellum Man, I don't know. Uh, I think it works. It probably works best as like a sort of satire of black elitism. Even then, like if I piece that out, like I'm not trying to argue that like black elitists need to be taught a lesson or anything like that. And that's kind of the read of this movie. And that I, I, I find abhorrent. Hmm. But like. I don't, I don't know, man. I just don't fucking know. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Antebellum, <laughs> we just don't know. You come just here for that. Come here know. for that really hard-hitting, uh, definitive analysis. <laughs> uh, I, I, I already told everyone to go away if they hadn't watched it, but, um, but I'll say for the record, though, I do think, I do think people should watch it just so they can let us know what they think. Because I mean, we really don't know what to think. So, uh, Daniel, before we uh, get out of here, I don't really have anything else to plug this week, but if you have anything else you want to recommend people watch, I know you haven't watched a whole lot of movies recently either. Oh, uh, actually, um, I've been in overdrive the past couple weeks. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, I've been in overdrive. I'm trying to hit that 3,000 mark. Oh. Um, I've, got, I've got 21 uh, reviews that I still need to, like, post um, I, that I've seen since, like, the beginning of the month. I'm trying to hit that 3,000 mark. I think I'm um, about... I'm 85. I've got 15 movies to go by the oh, end of the month. Okay. Uh, and then I'll hit 3000 movies, which I'm super psyched about. But yeah, I've seen a shit ton. Um, honestly, I fall into a bit of a rut where I just watch genre movies. I try to keep it diverse. I try to watch my little art house movies, but I mean, I just haven't had the, the mind space to do it these, these past couple of weeks. I've just been watching DTV action. There's this wonderful trend in direct to video action in the, late 80s, early 90s, where we just were importing Hong Kong directors, giving them a micro budget and saying, do what you can with this. Um, and as a result, they made some really fucking great movies, man. So I'm going to recommend Super Fights, uh, directed by Tony, Tony Lung Si Hung. I don't know. I must be mangling that name and I apologize. Uh, this man, uh, he was the director of Blood Moon, which I consider one of the greatest martial arts movies one of the greatest action movies of all time super fights is a movie it's karate kid but like in wrestling but also there's like a drug ring hmm. uh a murder ring uh you know this kid he gets into this super fight tournament which is pretty much just wwe but a wwe in which everyone is like a martial artist uh and it's really silly and it's really goofy and corny in that wonderful, cheesy, early 90s way. But the fight scenes are, like, absolutely incredible. Uh, these people who come over here, like, from the Hong Kong industry, they, they, they have a take. They have a way to shoot action. They, they think about how to incorporate the environment in a way that just – it's just 
beautiful to watch in action. Uh, I really loved this movie. It's one of the greatest action movies you could see. Um, along those lines, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to, nobody lets me talk about direct video action, man. No Retreat, No Surrender 3, Blood Brothers, which is about a, uh, communist, uh, communist karate instructor teaming up with his superstar CIA brother in order to get vengeance on the mob for killing their dad. It's every bit as goofy as it sounds. And again, the action is incredible. And finally, along these lines, Bats. Huh. Bats, the uh, 1999 creature feature about a swarm of mutant bats terrorizing a town on the border. Um, it's really, really goofy, really, really silly. Is it like, like a, is it like a ripoff of Alfred Hitchcock's Birds, or is it? It's different? pretty much. It's pretty much the Birds. Okay. Uh, as far as I know, I've never seen it. Oh. I haven't seen the Birds. I have seen the Bats, <laughs> and it's it's just so much We're, fun. It's lunacy. Where can people watch these things? Because I just looked up Super Fights on Waterbox. It didn't even say where it was available. Yeah, Super Fights and No Retreat, No Surrender 3, Blood Brothers, you can find just on YouTube. The beautiful thing about direct-to-video action is a lot of great people uh, on the internet have decided to make it available for you to see immediately for free on YouTube. Uh, you can find a whole lot of gold over there. And bats you can find on Amazon Prime or Tubi TV. But, you know, warning about using Tubi, there's ads. I was watching Law Abiding Citizen the other day, and in the middle of like a scene where a prisoner is getting executed, a commercial for the McRib popped up. <laughs> so, you know, TV is a pretty cautious. solid platform, though. I mean, aside from you know, ads are can be annoying, but like it, it works well enough. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I recommend it if you just don't feel like paying for another streaming service. Gotcha. Uh, actually, I will say I. Uh, um, Nah, actually, I don't have. I don't really have a recommendation. Whatever. Uh, okay, but uh, as usual, you can find me on Twitter at Josh Jernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y. On Letterbox, same thing. Uh, podcasts on Twitter, Rewind Movie Pod. Email the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. Send any feedback to us there. Daniel, do you have any per- other personal stuff you want to plug or no? Nah, man. You can follow me on Letterbox, Felonious Funk. It's two F's, Felonious yeah, and could, Funk. You know, can, can track Daniel as he gets closer to. 3,000 movies. Coming up next on the pod, I think we're going to finally do our episode on Happiest Season with my friend Kayla, who uh, she last joined us when we talked about Sofia Coppola a few months ago. So looking forward to having her back. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks again to Daniel for joining me, and we'll see you next time. Happy holidays.